Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. NPR reported that before the pandemic, sales of traditional cigarettes had steadily declined, while e-cigarettes surged, particularly among minors. Now, in 2020, cigarette sales increased the first time in two decades at a time when tobacco companies spent more money to promote their products. Meanwhile, e-cigarettes or vaping continue to be popular, and this has led many states to increase taxes on e-cigs, hoping to curb usage. Now, a new study from Yale finds taxes on nicotine e-cigarettes change usage from one product to another. Evidence shows young adults increase cigarette smoking, which is more harmful than vaping nicotine. Today, where we live, we learn more. Have you smoked cigarettes or e-cigs? What cessation program worked for you? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom, Ruth Canovi, Advocacy Director for the American Lung Association in Connecticut and also Chair of the Connecticut Health Advocacy Group, Match Coalition. Ruth, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Michael Pesco. He's the Associate Professor of Economics at Georgia State University, co-author of that new Yale study on e-cigarette taxation. Michael, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with Ruth. Uh, We know uh, Johns Hopkins Medicine and and many other studies caution vaping is less harmful than cigarettes, but it's still not safe. And we know that primary care physicians work with patients to transition from cigarettes to e-cigarettes. And so why is that? Well, I guess I would caution um, the the Lung Association's stance is that e-cigarettes are tobacco products and people shouldn't be switching from tobacco products, but really quitting. And there are seven FDA approved cessations treatments, medications, as well as three types of counseling that have gone through a rigorous process of the FDA to be approved for a cessation device. And so we caution that, especially as a public health policy, right? These are not cessation treatments at all. Um, They are tobacco products. And in fact, when they were first introduced onto the market, the U.S. um, was trying to determine how, in fact, to treat these things. And the tobacco companies, in fact, advocated to not be treated as medications, but tobacco products, um, because really, frankly, the the processes and regulations are much less rigorous. And so um, they aren't um, cessation treatments. And so want to just really make sure that if there are, if people are curious about how to quit, there are a lot of cessation treatments available, talk to healthcare providers, and there's programs like 1-800-QUIT-NOW um, that people can access if they want help quitting. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to share, uh, Michael tweeted that vaping has never killed anyone. Let's end smoking by promoting that uh, that it's less harmful, um, 95% uh, less harmful. So is that public perception incorrect, Ruth? 
Well, I would say that 95% number is from, I've, I've seen it from um, something in the UK and the UK um, products are very different than they are in the US. There's tens of thousands of products on the market here. And while the FDA has made some strides, they've, I would say they've failed to do their work on regulating these products properly. And so harmless, less harmful is not harmless. And the other thing is these products have been on the market for a very short time in perspective to the more traditional combustible tobacco products that we've seen on the market for decades and decades. And it took decades and decades for the first Surgeon General's report to come out to talk about those first um, long-term health effects that we've seen. So considering the source and the industry that is creating these products, I think it's safe to err on the side of caution when we're looking at public health impacts, especially when we've seen just how many youth have started using these products. And when people are saying that they're using them to help, they're switching and not quitting. When you ask, you know, do people stop using e-cigarettes? No, generally people stop using the other programs that are helping them quit. And so I think it's just, we need to be cautious and to be honest, we'd love to see more um, cessation of options available, but there is a right process to go through to be approved as a cessation treatment. And so um, we have a lot of work to do on, I think, public perception and, and research. Let's talk about the FDA, Ruth, since you brought that up. You know, they have ordered hundreds of products off the market. There was a vape holder shaped like a Game Boy that uh, kids could hide from their parents, also flavored e-cigs. That's all according to an investigation this month by Stat News. So why is the FDA so slow to enforce these regulations? That's a good question. And I, 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 I wish I knew, um, but we are really pushing hard to get the FDA to act. As we saw, we saw that stay with Juul. And we know, I mean, in 2009, they were essentially given the authority to regulate all these tobacco products. And if they do this right, we can really see some great progress with um, tobacco as a whole, because we, we know what works, right? We've seen what works with traditional combustible cigarettes, and I think we need to transfer that to all tobacco products, and the FDA has the ability and needs to act now. Again, you're hearing Ruth Canovi, who's Advocacy Director for the American Lung Association in Connecticut. Also with us, Michael Pesco, who's Associate Professor of Economics at Georgia State University. I mentioned, Michael, that you co-authored a recent Yale study on e-cigarette uh, taxation uh, with uh, Professor Abigail Friedman of the Yale School of Public Health. And so I wanted you to maybe share some of the results of, of that study, how taxation uh, in more than 30 states and uh, D.C. can drive nicotine consumption. Uh, sure. Um, we, we used uh, a, a survey data uh, sources that are collected by the um, by the government. Um, we know the locations where individuals reside. Um, within uh, the survey data source, we identified the 18 to 25 year olds, the young adults um, within this particular study. But I've done uh, a wide body of work on taxation, looking at other populations, including teenagers, pregnant uh, women uh, and adults. Um, but this particular study that recently was published is on uh, young adults um, who we suspected might be uh, somewhat. Uh, uh, they might have high rates of substitution between e-cigarettes and cigarettes because their e-cigarette usage rates are are higher. Um, so our data is from uh, 2014 through 2019 uh, at a time when a number of states adopted e-cigarette taxes. And so we have a nice pre-post kind of design based on where the individuals reside. Um, uh, and some states get a tax and other states don't get a tax. 
Uh, and based on that, we see that the e-cigarette tax, um, a, a dollar a mill a uh, dollar um, a tax per fluid milliliter um, reduces uh, young adult uh, e-cigarette use uh, fairly sizably. Um, but almost all of those young adults that quit using e-cigarettes due to an e-cigarette tax, you see them showing up then in the current smoking uh, column uh, instead. And so they they quit using e-cigarettes and they uh, um, uh, either resume smoking or or more likely uh, possibly they they didn't try to quit with an e-cigarette as a result of e-cigarette tax and so continue uh, smoking um, uh, cigarettes. Now that finding that you just shared with us also published this July in the journal Addiction again that e-cigarette taxes uh, can drive young people towards cigarettes. Is that shift specific to the 18 to 25 year old age group, Michael? No, uh, uh, thanks for asking. No, we, we find a very uh, consistent evidence um, across different populations. Um, uh, this this work is all funded by the, the federal government um, and the National Institutes of Health. Um, so we've looked within teenagers, we've looked within pregnant women, we've looked within adults uh, using uh, basically any survey data source out there that we can get our hands on to see if uh, this relationship holds up. And it's it's a fairly consistent uh, relationship. Um, we do uh, see uh, different rates of substitution uh, across different populations. Um, uh, so, for example, the, the young adult population has one of the highest rates of substitution uh, compared to other populations, but there's some level of substitution regardless of population. So as a health economist, you're naturally interested in the intended and unintended effects of policies. So seeing how with the these sin taxes, uh, leading people who are already using nicotine products through uh, e-cigs, switching back to, to cigarettes, you know, that can be, I guess, troubling. What, what's your take there, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't um, I disagree with Ruth uh, at all that e-cigarettes are uh, not a safe product, um, uh, but I, I they are substantially safer, right? Um, I think there's a lot of disagreement about how much safer they are. That's that's reasonable, right? Um, but, but basically, in this situation with the young adults in particular, we have um, a population of people that almost one for one uh, reduces their e-cigarette use and picks up cigarette uh, smoking instead. Uh, so that seems to be suboptimal for that uh, for public health within that population uh, as a result of people using uh, a more risky product. So knowing all of this, when we think about how harm reduction plays into, you know, thinking about e-cigarette usage among young people, something that policymakers should be paying attention to. Absolutely. There's always any policy is going to have an intended effect and an unintended effect. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to, you know, quantify uh, based on uh, what we observe uh, with um, uh, early state uh, kind of regulations, um, uh, what these relationships are, um, because they can inform uh, decision making at, for other states and federal government decision making as well. Again, uh, today we're talking about how uh, tax increases on electronic uh, cigarettes, e-cigs, uh, vaping products can impact usage. This new Yale study finding that people, especially young adults, 18 to 25, um, that can they can then likely switch to smoking traditional cigarettes. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Ruth uh, Kenobi is still with us from the American Lung Association. Ruth, how do you respond to some of the findings here? No, I mean, I I heard that and I read the study and I think um, we certainly know that youth and a lot of populations do behave like this when we've seen an increase in cigarette um, taxes. 
behavior is changed. And one question that I had when reading the study was whether or not it was assessed how a tax increase for all products that was equitable and robust impacts behavior. Because um, as it certainly is clear that young and, and emerging adults are price sensitive and behave as such. So I'm, I think that this information is important, but I'm curious as how, how we could look at that overall as an increase in all tobacco products that's equitable and pair that to ensure that there are quality and robust cessation programs available that young adults um, know about and can access um, with ease. Michael, what's your reaction? Uh, well, I think the, you know, the, the converse of the idea of, of all tobacco taxes being equal, right, is that we would be uh, taxing a, a more lethal product, cigarettes, uh, um, the same as less lethal products, right? Uh, E-cigarettes, right? And and so I think you know a better strategy from a public health perspective is to uh, tax uh, products proportionate to their public health risk. Um, and if we believe that e-cigarettes are a safer product, um, and there's questions about how much safer they are, right? Um, uh, but uh, in that spirit, then we would want to tax e-cigarettes lower to incentivize people using more lethal product, cigarettes, to to reduce their to to reduce their um, to reduce their risk. Um, and in terms of uh, smoking cessation programs, I'm all for it. Um, but you know, a lot of people they have tried. Uh, FDA approved um, uh, smoking cessation methods, and it hasn't worked for them, right? Um, so this would include uh, nicotine gum, patches, uh, lozenges, uh, 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 et cetera. Um, so for those people that aren't able to quit with using uh, FDA approved uh, nicotine replacement therapy methods or smoking cessation, uh, smoking uh, medications, um, it, it's a benefit for public health to have a lower a uh, reduced risk product available for them to uh, to purchase instead of using uh, cigarettes. And so a number of these e-cigarettes too, I will mention, while they're not approved for sm smoking cessation specifically, uh, the FDA has reviewed their applications and has determined that indeed they are safer product, they are appropriate for the protection of public health and has put their stamp of approval for them to be uh, uh, sold um, uh, in the United States uh, in thinking that this will help to reduce tobacco-related morbidity and mortality. Hmm. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about e-cigs and what a new study shows uh, when you have a higher taxes on vaping products, uh, how that may lead consumers to switch, and especially the young adult population of 18 to 25. You know, I am curious when we think about lobbying, how that works differently for uh, traditional cigarettes and e-cigarette products, you know, how that plays into taxation, Michael. What can you tell us? Well, I, I think one thing that uh, is interesting about the e-cigarette industry um, is that uh, initially uh, the e-cigarette industry was um, uh, entirely independent of the uh, the traditional tobacco industry, right? Um, and uh, over time, a number of uh, traditional tobacco companies then have been per buying out the e-cigarette the e uh, uh, companies, um, likely because they sense that if they, they either they would be destroyed by this product if they didn't somehow bring it into their control and 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 try to control the development and and uh, distribution of these products um, uh, uh, more. Um, but uh, e-cigarettes started out as a competitor to the traditional tobacco industry, and there's no love lost by anybody for uh, the traditional tobacco industry and and um, uh, the harm that they have uh, inflicted. 
Um, so I think the strategy has probably uh, changed. Uh, basically, as the industry, as the tobacco industry has uh, purchased out these uh, independent e-cigarette uh, companies, um, and uh, I imagine uh, now the the e-cigarette, the traditional tobacco industry that owns a lot of the e-cigarette companies, they might not mind that much a um, a, a tax parity. Uh, a proposal in which e-cigarettes are taxed the same rate as traditional cigarettes because that protects their most lucrative uh, uh, product, uh, the the cigarette, right? Um, so, so that would be that would be my sense, but I'm a little bit removed from the politics of, of it all as a, as a researcher, obviously. Hmm. Uh, Ruth Kenobi, you're still with us. I think the, the tobacco taxation in Connecticut is what four dollars and thirty five cents per pack of cigarettes. Uh, the state also taxes e-cigs per each milliliter at forty cents. And so, given the conversation we're having about uh, taxes on uh, nicotine products, you know, what do you think the optimal tax rate could be for both products to prevent consumers from from price shopping? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about tax parity, as um, Professor Pesco mentioned, for a number of years. Um, and so I think we'll we'll look at this data and see what we can um, and, you know, take it into consideration as we're making decisions about what makes sense. But there's also cigars and little cigarettes and all kinds of other products that aren't um, taxed at the same rate. And our view has been um, not to necessarily pick winners and losers of, you know, based on of public health protections based on the kind of device um, that you're addicted to for nicotine. Um, so we'll be looking at this and trying to determine what makes sense moving forward for public health. Mm. And Michael Pesco, I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, what do we know about usage in states that don't tax e-cigarettes? I don't have the I don't have you know descriptive uh, uh, data um, uh, in front of me, um, but uh, you know our studies suggest that um, if if you if a state does not have a tax and then they adopt a tax, uh, right, um, the e-cigarette use rate, uh, uh, rates will uh, decline relative to uh, states over that same time period. They did not change their taxation uh, policy, and then similarly, cigarette use rates should increase. Um, so that's it's a empirical answer. I don't have a simple answer to that, but um, but that's what our study results uh, suggest. You're hearing Michael Pesco. He's going to stay with us. He's a health economist, associate professor of economics at Georgia State University, co-author of a recent Yale study on e-cigarette taxation. I want to thank Ruth Kenovi for joining us again with the Connecticut a chapter of the American Lung Association. Ruth, thank you for your perspective. Thank you so much. You're listening to Connecticut Public and Where We Live. More on efforts to curb young adults from nicotine after a short break. What questions do you have about vaping? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Centers for Disease Control report finds one in five high school students used e-cigarettes in 2020, and more than 6% of the U- of U.S. adults vape. We're focusing on the young adult population today, 18 to 25, to learn about their habits and, and what may be effective to curb nicotine use. Earlier, we talked about a Yale study that found increasing taxes on nicotine vaping products led to a decline in youth and young adults' rate of daily vaping, but higher cost of the products leads to an increase in traditional cigarette use. With us on Zoom, Michael Pesco, Associate Professor of Economics at Georgia State University and co-author of that uh, that Yale study. And joining us now is Dr. Javid Sukera, who's Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Living and Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital. Dr. Sukera, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so given what we learned from the Yale study and um, what we le- know about e-cigarettes versus traditional cigarettes, you know, what are the best products to wean young people away from nicotine products? So I think the challenge is when we get into practice, it's really difficult to think about it in a way uh, that we're assuming that one size fits all. I think what we have to remember is that every individual teen is going to have different patterns of use. Um, and generally, taking a harm reduction approach is much better than an abstinence-focused approach, meeting teens where they're at and opening up conversations about how best to support them. We know that research suggests that young people want uh, to be able to reduce their use of substances that they're having difficulties with. It's just about our ability as adults to open up space to have conversations that are individualized and sensitive to that. Mm. Uh, given what you said about, you know, one size doesn't fit all here and thinking about, you know, when teens and young adults um, are choosing particular nicotine products, you know, what do we know about, you know, why um, the rate of, of vaping has increased among minors and young adults? Well, it's always going to be multiple things. Uh, and we want to avoid too much oversimplification, but I do think that there's a confluence of several forces. We know um, the pandemic has been a disruption for everybody and changed the dynamics of everything. But what we also know is that there's been clear and heavy marketing of the products to young people, knowing that this is a target market and knowing that this is a, a period of developmental vulnerability where patterns of use can set in. Many young people have uh, inaccurate beliefs, uh, support myths about uh, vaping use and see it as being harmless completely, ignoring uh, that there can be harms that are still associated with e-cigarette and vape use. 
There's a new study from the University of Georgia, Dr. Sikara, that found physically active teens in high school are more likely to vape. Teens who reported an hour of physical activity four to five days a week were 23% more likely to smoke an, an e-cig product than their less active peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's your response to that? Uh, what are the biological factors, if any, that may drive teens to vape? So I'm not going to give too scientific of an answer because uh, I'm not a, a researcher specifically in this area, but I can tell you that um, in order to answer these questions, I think it's best to really spend time with youth. When I spend time with young people, what's clear to me is that the world that they're living in right now isn't a world that anyone's ever been a young person in. And with the excessive amounts of stress, the excessive amounts of social comparison, and the kind of toxic perfectionism that society keeps pushing, um, it's not surprising to me that young people have varied ways in which they cope. Some ways are healthy and some ways are unhealthy. Uh, We also know as adults there are healthy and unhealthy ways that we're coping. But when we live in an era where uh, even some of us who know better and spend excessive amounts of time doom scrolling uh, or binge watching the news cycle, there's all sorts of reasons why a young person might fall into a maladaptive coping pattern, um, recognizing that sometimes activity and excessive activity is also part of that maladaptive coping pattern. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about nicotine use among uh, young people. Dr. Javid Sekera is with us, Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Living and Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital. And so given your experience, Dr. Sekera, you know, tell us about you know, what role therapy plays among youth and young adults in uh, smoking cessation. So I think it's a very important tool and a very important intervention. But I would say that a lot of our existing paradigms really are quite uh, patronizing and abstinence focused in terms of how we frame these conversations. I think that uh, therapies, we know have evidence, we know there's research behind them. We know that they're part of a toolkit of interventions that we can offer. But I think the most important part of all of this is opening the door to these conversations. Young people are used to adults making decisions for them, um, taking away their agency. And so I think it's on us as health professionals to step back, reframe, really focus more on creating space for young people to feel a sense of choice uh, as they map out the direction of which interventions they might want to take, as well as the pace of which interventions they might want to take. And given what you shared, uh, you know, you know what what helps. Um, you mentioned giving them space to make their own choices, and so I'm wondering if you can elaborate here on, you know, what are some of the the, the paths that young people are taking where they are able uh, to quit. So, the focus I would I would aim into or zoom into is those initial conversations, um, because I think that really is where all of this starts. And when those initial conversations are coming from um, the the idea that somehow the adult knows better and the young person doesn't know better and that there's a transaction of expertise, um, that can often feel coercive to young people and make them feel either not supported uh, or that they can't trust the adult that they're working with. That makes them more likely to withhold 
and keep secrets and less likely to open up around substance use, especially when there's fears about confidentiality with their parents. That's why um, it really is an imperative for us as adults to be aware of the forces that erode trust in that relationship and the forces that build trust and try our best to steer away from a coercive approach while still providing clear facts and uh, evidence-based data on what's harmful. Demystifying uh, and myth-busting is also an important role for us to have, um, but we don't want to come across as sort of adult explaining to a young person what it may or may not be like to live their life. We know kids are heading back to school, college campuses are opening back up. And so thinking about the role of, of teachers or counselors, even primary care physicians, Dr. Sequeira, and you know, how is Connecticut doing and uh, helping and get this information uh, to young people about substance use? So I have an interesting perspective on this because I recently moved here from Canada, where I lived for the past decade. Um, in Canada, there's some significant issues in youth mental health. Uh, but it is uh, at times heartening for me to see the attention that this issue is getting uh, and at times quite demoralizing and disappointing that there's still consistently a lack of sustained investment in young people's mental health. And the human cost of that lack of investment is staggering. We are just playing catch up in many ways uh, to build and fund the infrastructure we need in communities to support young people in schools and higher education. Um, so we have to remember that even if we have sprinkling of funds here or there, uh, we still have yet to build the kind of system that young people deserve. Mm. Yeah, we know uh, the Surgeon General on down has been warning about this youth mental health crisis in our country, Dr. Sequeira. And so you see a relationship between this mental health crisis and, and rising levels of use of addictive substances with young people? I would say that what we know about substance use is that it is often uh, a mechanism or a method to cope with pain or distress. There's all sorts of neurobiology and science we can get into, but at the end of the day, we really need to normalize and acknowledge that all of us seek ways to cope with emotional pain. And the amount of emotional pain that young people are experiencing right now is staggering. Um, not everybody's experiencing it. Again, there's no uh, one paintbrush that, that we should portray young people as. There's amazing, resilient young people who inspire me every day. Uh, however, at the same time, the reality of what they're experiencing, the reality of what this nation is going through, sociopolitically as well, uh, is really tough on young people. And so in the context of that kind of pain, suffering, and distress, to turn to uh, substances isn't surprising and the links to me are quite clear. You're hearing Dr. Javid Sakara here, where we live, Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Living and Chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital. And we started talking uh, this hour about e-cigarette youth among, use among young people. And as a psychiatrist, you know, again, how are you seeing youth responding to advertisements for e-cigs? It's so funny because we think about those conventional things about how um, advertising happens. And when I even hear the word advertising, you know, we think of a, an ad or a banner. But what a young person's life is right now is the way that things are marketed is much more pervasive mm -hmm. and uh, less traditional. So 
young people are prone to, as we all know, viral messaging. And so what's marketed in one moment may be very different from a message or a narrative that's marketed in the other. In general, um, we're still learning and, and we're grateful, I think all of us for research like the, the research you're citing today, because anybody who thinks that they can say what's happening at this moment in time with young people has to have a little bit of humility. We really don't know with all the changes that society has gone through exactly what's going to or what is happening um, because we're just catching up. A lot of the data we have is up until the start of the early days of the pandemic. So in terms of the messaging, um, it's really hard to know how messaging has changed or affected young people when it comes to vaping. But we do know that certainly the myths uh, and the marketing and the narratives, as well as the stealth ways in which these messages are being uh, pushed out, does lead to misperception and misinformation about the harms mm -hmm. of uh, vaping. Researcher Michael Pesco again is still with us, Associate Professor of Economics at Georgia State University. Michael, I am curious, is there any evidence when we get back to uh, what we talked about earlier, uh, syntaxes, increased taxes on e-cigs, you know, does it lead youth and young adults to acquire e-cigs from unlicensed or potentially more dangerous sources? What can you tell us? Yeah, we see evidence of that within um, within youth uh, that when uh, e-cigarette taxes are um, adopted, uh, you see uh, reductions in uh, youth uh, obtaining their e-cigarettes from a retail environment, which is where the tax would be in place. And uh, we see increases then in them accessing e-cigarettes through social sources. Uh, so it really, if these social sources just happen to be a friend that went to the store to buy the e-cigarette, uh, then there probably wouldn't really be any public health difference if the youth is purchasing the e-cigarette themselves or they're using an e-cigarette that a friend has bought that was purchased in a store. But but if instead these socially sourced e-cigarettes are being produced in informal uh, uh, economy, um, uh, then uh, there's more concern that contaminants might be uh, entering into the e-cigarette that could hurt the, the youth uh, uh, more than just the, the uh, what would be in a, a store-bought e-cigarette. Michael Pesco, again, co-author of this new Yale study. We'll make sure we link it on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live for our listeners to learn more. We thank you for your time. Again, he's Associate Professor of Economics at Georgia State University. Thank you. And thank you to Dr. Javid Sakara, Chair and Chief of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital and the Institute of Living. We thank you for your time as well. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. Coming up, we talk more about the marketing of e-cigarettes. You can join us, too, with a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow with President Biden's plan to wipe out student debt for some borrowers. 
what should individuals do with their newfound discretionary income? On the next Where We Live, we talk about life after student loan debt. Is it possible? And setting new financial goals. That conversation tomorrow. Now, the Federal Trade Commission's first ever report this year on e-cigarette sales and advertising found that flavored cartridges, nicotine concentration, and deep discounting surged between 2015 and 2018, likely fueling increased underage consumption. So how are e-cigarette makers expanding their market, and is the messaging entirely ethical? Joining us now on Zoom is Angela Maddy, professor at the School of Business and the School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. Now, I mentioned uh, your roles at both the business and medical schools at, at Quinnipiac. So you're really in a position to see how marketing and advertising drive consumer behavior also in, in, in public health. So what are you seeing with regard to vaping products? Well, you know, the, the manufacturers of vaping products are very sophisticated and very targeted in their marketing. They realize that, um, you know, the consumption has significantly increased in our young adult population, 18 to 24, and are using a number of marketing tools and directed tools specifically um, to target this population and to get them booked early. And as um, some of our previous experts have identified, it's this formative development years that create long-term um, lifestyle. So um, the, the, they're very sophisticated. They're very sophisticated in terms of targeting a demographic that will be long-term consumers, and they're very sophisticated in the methods of um, hitting this age group on various modalities that they're um, impacted can you give us some examples? When we talked to Dr. Sequeira, he said when, we, when we're thinking about young people and, and what advertising is and how pervasive it is, the messages that reach them in many different ways. Sure. You know, um, there's a number of online platforms like TikTok, um, things of that nature. Um, they also target um, <clears throat> lots of viral messages go out to these kids. Um, and there is also, and again, this is anecdotal. We don't have anything to support it right now. I think Dr. Shakaro indicated that we have a lot to learn about what happened um, during the pandemic. I can tell you as a mother and as an auntie to nine nieces and nephews that are in the various stages of this developmental age, they were knocked for a loop during um, you know, the recent pandemic, isolation, move out of their dorm rooms, things like that. So um, I think there's a lot to be learned in this space right now. Um, anything right now until we have the really good work of people like Mike Pesto and other health economists and researchers about um, how this has impacted this generation has yet to be determined. But there seems to be a general um, coping mechanism that occurred with, with these young adults that um, is significant during the pandemic. And you're dealing with very sophisticated companies that have very sophisticated data 
analysis and marketing tools and have a real um, desire to hit this group for long-term consumers. When we think about advertisers uh, for e-cigs, uh, are they trying to destigmatize e-cigarettes? You know, the messaging that, well, this is uh, less harmful than uh, traditional cigarettes. And talk about that messaging. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And again, you know, much um, significant work needs to be done in this particular area. But, you know, it's just not true when you look at the data specifically for Connecticut. And there were 50 Connecticut residents that had vaping injuries um, when you look at the recent data, lung injuries. So, yes, there's a, anecdotally, again, there's a general thought that there isn't any harm associated with vaping. Now, the data does support less harm from vaping versus cigarette smoking, but there's still harm associated with vaping. Is there less stigma associated with vaping versus, you know, traditional cigarettes, Angela? You know, I, I believe so. You know, I mean, it's it just seems to be more socially acceptable, especially with an adult population, because it's not as um, offensive to people vaping. It's not a constant stream of smoke and things like that. So, you know, again, anecdotally, it seems to be less social stigma than uh, with cigarette smoking. Mm. And getting back to the, the conversation earlier about how uh, taxes on these nicotine products can impact usage or switching or the substitution effect where um, maybe they won't vape anymore because it's getting expensive, but they may go back to traditional cigarettes. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have some, you know, public policy experiences on, on whether taxes uh, have led to a decrease in the number of people consuming tobacco products? It, yes. <laughs> and I think Dr. Pesco and his colleague at Yale have really done a, a service um, in terms of looking at unintended consequences of taxing. That That's not a new thing from policy. You know, he's been able to document in his study that if you increase taxes a dollar per milliliter on e-cigarettes, you decrease e-cigarette use by 2.5%, which is a good thing, as Martha Stewart would say. However, and, you know, the however, always with public policy and syntaxes, is you now have an unintended consequence. And that unintended consequence is he found that 3.7% increase in cigarette smoking. So that's exactly what you don't want. Um, so now you have imposed a syntax on something that is less harmful than the alternative. So when you develop these taxes, you really have to look at the whole of what's going on. And um, I think this is a significant problem with the syntax on, on vaping. You know, it's a good thing because you've decreased vaping, but it's, it's a bad thing because you transfer the use of tobacco products to cigarette smoking that we do know, and this is not anecdotal information, we do know that it's much more harmful than vaping. Hmm. Uh, Angela Maddie is my guest right now, professor at the School of Business and the School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. And so I'm wondering, Angela, if you can talk more about you know how business schools are producing graduates, thinking about them being more savvy healthcare uh, consumers when we think about public health messaging. Tell us more. 
So I think that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. You know, business schools are training people that are going to purchase health care. Businesses, along with government, are the largest purchasers of health care services. I think there's a real opportunity to improve the knowledge, the expertise, and the analytical abilities of students who are going to go out in the business world to ask the right questions and to develop the right public health programs to improve the health of the nation. This hasn't been the case. You know, you look at things like patient safety. You know, employers are the largest purchasers of healthcare. However, they're not for the most part. There are some pockets like Walmart, for instance, that are looking for centers of excellence. But they're not asking the right questions. They're not demanding accountability of the healthcare system. So you really need to make the payor, the businesses, your system more accountable for improving the health of the nation. And I think we can we can train business students to be savvy consumers of healthcare. And I think when you you train the individual who is writing the check to demand more accountability, you're going to see the curve move. Now that it's not the be all end all to improving the healthcare system. But it's an important role that our young leaders can begin to play or, or enhance their skills and demanding accountability for a healthier nation. So that, that's a great question, Lucy. And I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for business schools to play a bigger role in healthcare. And I think, um, or I hope that AACSB, the, in the use, um, institution that accredits healthcare or accredits business schools will begin to incorporate measures in their accreditation process to make our business students savvy, smart purchasers of healthcare. And I really do think that'll move move the curve in this country. Has that conversation been going on at all, Angela? I'm just curious about that when you mentioned the accreditation. Um. There is, you know, AACSB, which is our accreditation body, is beginning to determine or evaluate business schools on impact. So it is going on. Things are slow in academia. <laughs> but um, it's a real, in my humble opinion, a real opportunity for improvement in our healthcare system. Mm. It's funny you mentioned uh, academia can be slow, but it sure is expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more on that uh, on tomorrow's show. Uh, Sounds but, like yeah. a mother who just sent a daughter or son. <laughs> um, Angela, before we let you go, when we think about you know again these these graduates coming out uh, of business schools, uh, being thinking about how to appeal more to to healthcare consumers, you know what are the right questions they should ask? The right questions they should begin to ask in healthcare systems. Yeah, to what? be better, to be savvier, uh, to, uh, to appeal to consumers who are, you know, uh, care about their health. Yeah. What are, you, what are your rates of nosocomial infections? How often do you make somebody sick when they go to the hospital? If someone does an operation on you, how often have they done the operation? What are their outcomes related to that operation? How many procedures does this particular hospital do? Um, what, what are your 
patient satisfaction rates. How satisfied are your patients with, with the care given? What, what sort of quality measures do you have in place? Those, those sorts of questions. And I think, you know, large employers or even small employers can begin to push the envelope and demand accountability in the healthcare system. Um, money talks, and, and they're the ones who are paying for healthcare. Mm. A last question for you, Angela. You know, we, we like to do benchmarking. We, of course, like to see what's happening abroad. Of course, there, our health systems are, are more robust and uh, more equitable in, in some cases, especially when it comes to, to cost. But I am wondering, you know, are there examples um, from, you know, our our counterparts uh, abroad in terms of how messaging uh, can impact, uh, you know, usage and, and better um, outcomes? Well, when we look at other industrialized nations, we fall woefully behind on those things that look um, as quality measures like infant mortality, for instance. So I think there's lots of opportunities for improvement, definitely in our healthcare system. You know, and there's lots of opportunities for businesses and business schools to get involved in and improving our healthcare system. And I think this whole tobacco issue is one. You know, if, if colleges and campuses can begin to make it unappealing for the 18 to 22 year olds that they're responsible for, for vaping or for cigarette using, usage um, and create uh, responsibility for educating people on campuses. I think that's a contribution that universities can make and business schools can make. That's Angela Maddy again here where we live, professor at the School of Business and the School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. Thanks, Angela. I appreciate talking with you. Oh, I appreciate it, Lucy. Thank you. Today's show produced by Sujatha Srinivasan and Mira Raju. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.